This is the podcast about the meaning of concepts in business. All right, so I'd like to welcome our listeners once again to our podcast. And today we have again, once once again, a very wonderful guest from Great Britain, am I right, Steve? Correct, yes, from the UK, yeah. All right, Steve, so we have Steve Hearson with us. And just to make a little bit um, of an intrigue, I guess, for our listeners, this is how I'm going to introduce you, and then you'll tell us whether uh, I'm right or not. I've heard that um, once your colleagues uh, described you as the right kind of a fly in the ointment. Am I right? Correct. Yeah, it was one of my colleagues years ago um, described that me as that to a, a client and said, "You you need Steve. He's the right kind of fly in the ointment." Um, mm. Ironically, they didn't end up working with me. Um, <laughs> so my my story is, and his story was that uh, they wanted somebody a little bit safer. Okay. So what did they mean by that? Could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? What are, what are you doing? What are you involved at uh, currently? Um, um, so in terms of the work I'm doing at the moment, um, it, it ranges. So some of the work I'm doing at the moment is around organizational culture. So I'm consulting, I've just finished one piece of work, but I'm consulting to another organization around um, collaboration and behaviors uh, in a large IT function. Um, I'm also designing and will be delivering soon another of, of um, a number of programs I've done over the years, mm-hmm. which are orientated towards developing change practice and consulting skills for internal practitioners. I do quite a bit of consulting supervision, um, which is a, a growing area of my practice. And I also do one to one coaching, although I, mm-hmm. I confess I, I dislike the term coaching profoundly. Why, why is that so? Why you dislike this term? Um, because that's such a popular it, term nowadays, isn't it? It is, and I, I get it's really easy to understand. But mm-hmm. there's there's a couple of things really. Firstly, is is where it comes from. It comes from, if I remember correctly, it comes from a, a sporting environment. Mm-hmm. So so you know it has a shadow and a subtext of of winning. You know, success is equated with winning, um, and there's my observation of sometimes of, of some people who, who get into coaching is just they get hooked on ideas of, of the success of the client relationship is is their client has to succeed mm-hmm. well i i'm utterly agnostic as to what success looks like for a client you know if a client wants to dig their way out of, a, of their organization then that's success to them is that if actually they want to use the time to talk about something that's totally left field and to do with something outside of work on the basis that mm-hmm. I'm being there paid to help them in the round then we talk about that you know they they get to determine what success is it is not my place to determine what success is and I always remember a, a director of a not-for-profit saying to me years ago um, as we were, we were talking after I facilitated a session with his board he said to me various people are saying to me I should I should have coaching and mm-hmm. I said well you want to be coached and he said no to which I responded well don't then and he was surprised that I said that yeah um there's this idea that everybody will benefit from coaching which which I I don't agree with okay how does this whole um I mean process of consulting works so the client addresses you and what typically they ask you for like how 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 does it all work I have a problem so I come to you or and then you tell me what to do what, what how does that operate 
Do you want the short or the long answer? I mean, well, I think. I mean, I mean, let's let's keep it really simple. We we, yeah. we can we can talk a lot of. Uh, we have this wonderful English word twaddle, which I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever come across, um, which basically means rubbish. There's mm -hmm. a lot of twaddle talked about consulting. There's lots of jargon. There's lots of rhetoric. If you strip it right back, consulting is essentially a helping relationship, as is coaching, incidentally. If you're not helping your client, and I don't mean helping as in rescuing, let's be really clear here, but if you're not helping them in some respect, then what on earth are you doing there? So we start from the basis that it's a helping relationship, and then you get into um, a conversation about, well, what's the need? Um I start with the assumption that if a client approaches me, by definition, they want something to be different. So for me, all consulting relationships are predicated on the assumption the client wants something to change. So consulting is orientated towards change. That then brings us to um, the, how you as a consultant, how, consultant help a client to change. And then we get into the whole gnarly question of what's your... Um, philosophy as a consultant or as a practitioner what assumptions do you come with about the nature of change and crucially how are you going to contract with a client so you're going to contract as an expert you're going to contract as a pair of hands or you're going to contract as some form of collaborative partner um and there's there's quite a lot of uh, parent child relationship stuff that goes on in consulting and client relationships mm -hmm. how did you decide to become a consultant do you just you know what was it the time when you felt that you were ready to do that or or was it the long-term kind of you know i don't know aspiration of yours how how did you end up uh, no not at all i got i i my role got made redundant when i was working at the guardian in 2002 mm -hmm. and i was lucky enough to um have a, have a a company that was one of my service providers turn around to me and say look we want to pay you to work for us two days a week okay. and that immediately gave me the option to effectively just leave an organization after seven years and take it easy for a while because I was exhausted at that point have some money coming in and think about what I wanted to do and, and gradually I started to get more work doing um, contracting and change change work business analysis work um, and I spent 10 years over which time I, I started to describe myself as a change consultant without really understanding what on earth that meant. I think if you look at people who leave organisations, what I observe sometimes is, is that people like me leave organisations and they call themselves a consultant. But if you ask them what, what kind of consultant exactly are they, mm -hmm. um, you don't always get a clear answer. Um, so I get approached by people quite often who want to talk to me about how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And it's it's telling that, Sometimes people who've been in organisations for a while can't really identify what it is that people value about their work. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the big changes for me a few years ago when I really got clear on that. So when I started to call myself a consultant, um, it was more because that is what, that was the the easiest way to label myself in relation to clients expectations mm -hmm. but I was more interested in my change practice and my practice as a consultant which is why I ended up doing the the master's program I did when you think about the change consultant um how, how do you understand yourself like how do you perceive change yourself what is change for you uh ubiquitous a given mm -hmm. it just is the only question is what flavor how much um, and our relationship to and with it. But then when it comes to the client, let's say, are they all open to that change? Let's say even when they're 
I mean, when they need you, when they ask for your help, right? Uh, when they're in that kind of situation, but then are they all ready for that change? Do they like? Do you make them understand that they need that change, or, or just it naturally comes? Well, that's, that, there's a there's an interesting question lurking or something lurking in there. So, um, a, a very good friend of mine, um, Alistair Wiley, mm-hmm. talked to me years ago about this idea of better sameness. Okay. And this is the idea that you know clients sometimes say they want things to change, but actually what they're really after is a version of better sameness. Mm-hmm. So I want things to change, but I'd really rather they didn't change that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's understandable because um, if you think about it from a leadership perspective, who are the people in organisations who often have the most invested in in the way an organisation has, has developed? I think it, it wants... Sometimes it gets labelled as being, you know, the people who work in the organisation, the employees um, who are going to be asked to change are the ones who got most invested in in the status quo. Actually, a senior leadership team, which has co-created the conditions to take an organisation to the state it's currently in, have a huge investment in that story. Mm-hmm. And I think what get, gets missed is, is that um, whilst leadership teams sometimes do say they want things to change, what I also observe is a, a parallel process sometimes of them not really wanting things to change. Exactly. Um, because if you think about it, sometimes the reasons organisations need to change is because the leadership has sucked. Mm-hmm. Or they've not been as effective as they could have been. And yet we leave the same leaders in place to change the organisation. So... Um, I know that, that directly answers your question, but I guess what I'm getting to is is this idea that 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 organisations want they talk they talk about change, but but it's not always clear how much they are genuinely up for it, what type of change they want, and crucially how they think it's going to happen. So, do they want a consultant who's going to do it for them, or do they want to be in a co-creative, collaborative relationship? Well, I think that you know. The, the 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 meaning or the concept the word itself change it's a scary thing for any kind of human being and especially for you know kind of an organization which is which is used to certain ways which is used to certain i don't know activities and things you know that they're doing and then there you go you know somebody comes and then you know asks them not asks them but you know speaks about this that you have to do something a certain way different way and change is always scary isn't it well i think that that's I, what i i don't agree actually okay um, yeah. Because I think it's true that some people don't like change, absolutely, mm-hmm. and, and or some of us like some kinds of change, but we don't like other kinds of change. But it's a really, really easy way to discount um, and deny people's reality to construct an argument that says, well, the reason there's people the people in an organisation don't want things to change is because yeah. they're resistant to change because people don't like change. It's an oversimplification. Um, is it true that sometimes people don't want things to change? Yes, of course. But the reasons that they may not want the change that is being presented to them could be many. And I'll give you a really clear example. Um, One of my former colleagues did a piece of interesting research in in our NHS health system years ago. Mm -hmm. And he he came across this this case study of a ward that was incredibly well run. So this is a, a team of medical professionals and nurses who are running a really excellent uh, environment, high patient satisfaction, good clinical outcomes. And the organisation in the form of HR come to this ward and they notice that actually what this team have done 
is they've arranged it. So the people who want to work days probably work days. The people who like to work nights do more night shifts. Some people like really like working lots of weekends, so they work lots of weekends. It's arranged around the needs of people within that context. And they say, you can't do that. It's against regulations. You're not allowed to do that. You can't have people walking and working nights all the time or weekends all the time. And the ward sisters and the staff there say, but we've all agreed this. We've actually... It works to our, our needs. It, it really works at a personal life level and also at a clinical level. What's the problem? So over time, HR's and the organisation's position hardens. You have to change. It's against mm-hmm. regulations. Yeah. Um, the ward sisters and the staff, they get labelled as resistant to change. Over time, staff um, are told to work different shifts. They leave and patient satisfaction goes down and patient outcomes go down. So, you know, in that circumstance, I would argue that what the staff there were doing was entirely logical and the illogicality and the absurdity came from the Mm -hmm. HR function and from from management. Um, Another example, if you look at um, other institutions, well, let's, let's stick with the health service. There's plenty of instances in the health service where where you find, and I do quite a bit of work there, where people are desperate for things to change. Mm-hmm. Because our health service is an absolute mess at the moment, given the way it's being governed by, the, by our, our politicians. So people there are desperate for change. But it, so, so it's, it's, it's more complex than saying... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it, depends, it depends again from the context that you look. But then from your own kind of, I don't know, experience or maybe your own, the the way you're working, what do you notice? And maybe, again, maybe that's a question, you know, kind of uh, that doesn't have a particular answer, but the change uh, when you work with companies, does it necessarily have to come uh, from once, let's say from from the management, from the executives, or it can come naturally from the workers and, you know, or or does it only have to come from the, the, let's say, the, the, the executives? Well, it's interesting. So you notice also that linguistically, you know, and you did, you, you did it then, we do it often as we talk about the change. We objectify yeah. and we thingify it. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually change is a, is, as, a, as, a, as a process of, of largely human interaction um, and relationship in organisations is, is a dynamic unfolding process. Mm-hmm. So it can come from anywhere. Um, you know, it can come from, from senior leadership changing uh, their strategy because they have different objectives. It can come from external factors like COVID. Mm-hmm. It can come from people within an organisation um, lobbying for different working practices because they believe the current ones they've got are unsafe or they can see better ways of creating value. It can emerge from multiple different sources. Yeah. It can be customers pushing for it or a combination of two or more of those. So the idea that um that it's 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 single source is i think part of the problem exactly i get oh i understand what you're talking about what about the okay so when you work let's say with a company or you work with people um what is how would you describe yourself as as let's say as a consultant do every time you adapt let's say to what you have to do and you, you know kind of you know you adapt the role or you're always the same, or you kind of, you know, you juggle and you, you know, what what type of consultant you are? How do you see yourself? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So um, so I'm lucky enough that I, because I work largely for myself, and I, mm-hmm. I do work with and through others as well, I get to position myself as I want to. 
-hmm. So that means I get to position myself relative to my own um, preferred way of working, my own set of assumptions about what is useful for clients, and also my own preferred set of assumptions um, around the kind of clients I don't want to work with. Mm -hmm. So I position myself primarily as a consultant who wants to work with clients who want things to be different. If a client doesn't want things to be different, if they want a firm form of better sameness, I will encourage them to go elsewhere. Okay. Um, I also talk very early on these days in, in, when I talk to potential clients about my intent to create useful, useful discomfort in service of learning. Mm -hmm. Because my view is, is that in terms of um, learning and development and and um, helping people to understand why they behave the way they do and how they might behave differently, those kind of conversations and that kind of development mm -hmm. normally comes through some form of discomfort. I don't know about you, but all most of my, my most profound learning in life or useful learning has been preceded by some form of discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So when I think, you say that, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, well, and, and it's, well, that's in our private life or our work life. So mm -hmm. it's both. So I don't like colluding with the idea with clients that it's all going to be smooth. Um, I I sometimes um, talk about the idea um, of dirty consulting, which comes from uh, a guy called Richard Clayton, who's based in Hong Kong. And I love his idea of dirty consulting. It's the contrast between the suited and booted uh, professional services consultant who comes along with a very nice outfit with a flashy PowerPoint presentation and offers very neat quick fix or certain solutions. The dirty consultant turns up and says, look, I don't know what the problem is. You don't know what the problem is. And we won't know what the problem is unless we together start to inquire into it. And we create the conditions for as many people in the organisation from all parts of the system to come together and ask any question. And then from there, with that inquiry, just maybe, maybe we'll understand mm -hmm. what's really going on and we will understand maybe what our first steps are. And that to me seems to be far more reflective of the reality um, of, of, of complex change in organisations. Do you think that uh, is, is any kind of, uh, I don't know, moving forward or change or whatever you call it, you know, kind of, I don't know, is, is it possible if we do not put ourselves in this kind of, you know, uncomfortable position or or you know putting ourselves in this uh outside you know the box that we're kind of is, is it possible you know when you're when you're happy or when you're satisfied that something will will be different probably well, not it is i mean if you you can you, if you take appreciative approaches to change then, mm -hmm. then there's there's arguably it's a different kind of discomfort it could be a quite liberating and happy and joyous um comfort yeah but there's an energy to it but if if we're talking about um let's take take let's take organizational culture um mm. which is often misconstrued and misunderstood um and it shows up when people talk about talk about organizations having values because organizations can't have values they're inanimate they're they're, mm. they're um they don't have values the people within them have values and you can have conversations about how aligned those people might become with a set of hypothetical values, but the, an organization mm -hmm. doesn't have values. Um, but I would argue that with culture, because it's essentially behavioral, it's mm -hmm. essentially relational, it's essentially about inquiring into similarities and differences and in our stories about each other. 
It's about renegotiating, resetting boundaries and then creating the conditions to hold people to account around those new boundaries. Mm-hmm. How can that be anything other than uncomfortable, particularly where an organisational culture has been untouched or, in inverted commas, relatively stable for a mm-hmm. while? I, I don't see how that can be anything other than uncomfortable. No, oh, of course. No, I guess, I, I mean, I mean, you know, that I think it's very humane right? that, that you know, you have to put yourself in that kind of situation. But then it's also, you know, when you feel that everything is going kind of, you know, okay, then that's, you know, and nobody tells you or nobody kind of interferes with that okayness. I think that, you know, you just go on. <laughs> well, what, what, what's, what's lurking beneath our conversation here is um, something slightly uncomfortable, which is yeah. there is a view which comes from um, system psychodynamics. Mm-hmm. which is that all rituals and artifacts and processes and procedures that we create in organisations, whether that be a business plan, an HR policy, a job description, a meeting, an agenda, all of these things are simply containers for anxiety. Mm-hmm. The only reason we, we create them is because without that, our anxiety will be too great. So take a job description. Why do we have a job description? Well, <laughs> it's entirely possible, if I, you and I were working together, that we could have a really adult conversation and agree with each other what I'm responsible for, what you're responsible for, over what time period, and how we can hold each other to account. We don't need a job description. Yeah. Um, so all artifacts and structures and organisations are containers for anxiety, which means... From a psychodynamic perspective, um, you know, organisations are awash with anxiety, <laughs> and if you want to take it to another extreme existential angst, the only question is is how much and how close to the surface is it? I love this example when you said about the job uh, description, but I guess you know that once you have that job, once you come to to the workplace, you have the job description. I think that it makes you a little bit calmer. You know that it's all written there. You know, you know what you have to do. <laughs> so you you you've just proved my point. Exactly, <laughs> just makes so, so 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 to be really clear, I'm I'm not saying that they don't have utility. What I'm saying is, oh, no, of course, that 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 um. The, the greater the need for order, the mm-hmm. more likely it is as there's anxiety. And, and if we loop it back to change, why do organisations buy change methodologies like mm-hmm. pro-cycling, things like that? Because it, it, it sells a myth that you can do all this messy stuff in a really ordered, neat way. Mm-hmm. It colludes with the idea that this mess can be neatened up more than it can be. And I think, you know, that um, myself, you know, taking, I don't know, thinking about the experience, you know, that I have working in different types of organizations, I feel that, you know, this, this need or in, in, especially in the, as you call them, you know, the messy kind of, you know, situations and this need that once we have the structure, once we have that order, once we, you know, um, settle everything down, then everything will be fine. And kind of this need or this urge, you know, to, to make everything structured then you know people will hopefully feel better but but yeah it's all about that anxiety that that just lingers it's there and nobody talks about that but kind of you know trying to make everything yeah or more in order makes sense yeah yeah once you're done let's say consulting the company the organization uh are you done done or you return back and you kind of you know give them some sort of feedback or i don't know how, how does it work or you just 
finished and that's it and you move forward and the company then exists as as they exist depends on the on the relationship i have with the client mm-hmm. um, there's some clients i work with that i have contact with years after i finish working with them and there's a subset of those who who bluntly become friends um you know okay. i know in a, in a more social context um so so it varies it really does vary you know mm-hmm. and some clients never want to see me again yeah <laughs> i mean there's there's one of the things that that i think you know part of the shadow of consulting is you know ask ask a, a consultant how many clients they've had who would would prefer never to work with them again I mean, I can think of three clients I've had in my career who said effectively they will signal they didn't want to work with me again. Okay. Um, because not all consultants and consultants are right for all organisations, and you don't necessarily find that out until you started working together. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you you probably have to 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 spend quite quite some time to understand that and to realise these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Biz culture. This is the podcast about the meaning of concepts in business. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners more a little bit, uh, because I've heard you speaking about this really concept or really thing that you have, that the word that that you kind of, you know, play with, or tell us uh, a little bit more about it. Uh, which word? Oh, the, really? Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, so I, I was having a conversation last week with, in fact, yesterday with somebody mm-hmm. who was, who said to me effectively, you know, you really take a contrarian position, Steve. You know, mm-hmm. and the the sense of it was that sometimes that can be a bit relentless. And mm-hmm. I and I think there is there is a there's the possibility that there was a grain of truth in that. And it got me thinking about the position I hold. And it links back to 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 why this word really is important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so where it comes from is when I'm working with a client, or actually more generally, I have this this kind of microchip in my head. That instead of having intel stamped on it it's got the word really with a question mark okay and the more contradictory or absurd the thing i'm seeing or hearing is the more that that really sharpens it can be a very gentle really mm-hmm. really really <laughs> you know it, it's it's and it, it it tends to be at its sharpest i would say the more i experience um, unbridled certainty mm-hmm. or the exclusion of difference in favour of total similarity. So if I come across, for example, um, let's, let's put it in the, in, in, the, in yeah, if, you, if, if I come across, say, a, a, a group of practitioners in a particular field, whether it be organisational development or change, where they become so attached to their particular identity that I've heard people, you know, you know, organisation development being quite sneery about HR people. Okay. Um, that kind of behaviour will, will get my really chip going and mm-hmm. I will find myself separating from behaviour like that. And that's partly because of my background. You know, I, I'm, I'm the son of, a, of somebody who was you know, a very great thinker and an artist and a poet. He was also an alcoholic and he was right. one of um, life's great outsiders um, who cultivated a position in the periphery. So it's no surprise that I have an appreciation of the absurd and mm. that I also have my own patterns of of of, of noticing my relationship to the centre and to the periphery. Um, so I know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. 
when 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 did you start kind of I don't know because did it come to you once that you started using kind of you know that you just it clicked and then you kind of you know you had that you understood that you have this as you call it kind of like a microchip you know or you always had it with you I I would say it's 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 probably always been there but it's it's been let off the leash in the last yeah. five years and it's sharpened mm -hmm. and there's a shadow to this as well I mean there's a, there's a real risk to this which is um you know I find myself sometimes re responding or feeling something in me rise up in response to um what I regard as oversimplified or binary black and white thinking mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of it, for example, on LinkedIn. So, you know, the one of the the, the best examples of that is Simon Sinek, who does do some yeah. great stuff. But some of the stuff he puts out is just banal and oversimplified mm -hmm. aphorisms. And when I see thirty thousand people liking a statement like, "When a when a leader doesn't care, their people become careless." Okay. I think that needs calling out as being logically mm -hmm. flawed, oversimplified, mm -hmm. um, and invite a space for inquiry. And um, so I, that's the kind of thing that, that that catches me. This this that kind of oversimplification. This this inability to hold contradictions. This inability or unwillingness to consider what might be in the shadows. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I also mean the inability to to look at our own shadows and our own contradictions. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm fully aware that I have a shadow and, you know, I, I've thought a lot about my own, uh, I was about to say flaws, I don't like that word, mm -hmm. the edges that I have, the things I still have to learn, um, and my own contradictions. Um, but of course, if you loop it back to what you talked about early on, about consulting, um, that is not necessarily a common stance for a consultant to take. <laughs> okay. There, yeah. there, is a there is a subset of people, and I was talking to one on LinkedIn the other day, who was talking about how he, he increasingly brings um, his own fallibility to the client relationship. Mm -hmm. um, those are the kinds of consultants that I admire practitioners and I admire because they are human and they are able to work in the here and now with what is well, I guess that's you know here the key word being is human you know I think that that's something that 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 we kind of very commonly perhaps forget or maybe Ooh. don't think about yeah you spoke about, and I catch that uh, you spoke about um, that you don't like the word uh, flaws, and you called it edges. You know that that the edge. Mm. What about those edges and and stretches that that you also try to identify working with? Yeah, yeah, which is which is the name of my business as well. Uh, um, and 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 I really can't remember who it was who used that phrase, and it was I think it was one of my former colleagues. And it came up in conversation about six years ago when I was leaving my last full-time job. Um, and for me, it's this idea that when it comes to change and it comes to learning, you know, we all have an edge. There's that point where we go from our sense of, I'm comfortable with this. This is this is within my capability and competency. I'm, I'm not stressed by it. I, I can do this, you know, with varying degrees of competence and elegance and, and lack of stress. And then we hit that point where, ooh, 
right, okay, this is starting to get uncomfortable. Beyond this is mm -hmm. where I'm going to be un discomforted and to go beyond this, I'm probably going to have to learn something. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the edge. But then the question is, when you hit your edge, you have a choice about how much you want to stretch. Mm -hmm. So are you up for only a little bit? You know, I only want. I know I've got to do, deal with my 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 um the way in which I sharp and the way I impact people, and people think I don't listen that well. But okay, I'll I'll go and get a little bit of feedback. But you know, and I'll, then I'll I may do something next year when I do a leisure program. You know, I'm not really interested in in much stretch. Or do I start to get really curious about why it is I have a pattern of behaviour, which means that I don't listen to colleagues and I shut them out and I talk a lot and I start to think, well, hang on a minute, what's the cost of that? And where on earth does that come from? Right. In order to understand that, I might have to go away and do some real reflective thinking about who I am and where I come from and my self-narrative and the assumptions I hold about myself and others. That's a whole different order of stretch and reflective practice. So when I talk about edge and stretch, I'm talking about the combination of things. I'm talking about the point at which you as a client, and that could be as an individual or as a team or as an organisation, you mm -hmm. reach the your, your, your point of discomfort where you now are outside of what you know you can do competently and comfortably. And the area or the zone of learning, but also the degree of learning you're prepared to engage in. What about this, you know, this? I'm, I'm thinking now while listening to you about this whole idea of stretch, you know, but... For example, if I'm ready for for a small stretch, right? I'm I'm mm. not ready for big things. Maybe I'm not confident. I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know what you know to expect. I'm afraid. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but once during the period of this or process of this, do people start thinking that okay, I think I, I've tried. I think I'm ready for more. You know, I, I I can do it. You know, maybe I'm interested. I become curious, and then I'm ready. You know, I become a little bit more open to that. Maybe that's it's how it deeply goes. It's deeply subjective and it changes also depending on whether you're talking about, say, a group or an individual. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with my coaching clients, um, you know, sometimes the degree of stretch for somebody might be as simple as. Noticing how they they are in a meeting. Yeah. But literally, that's it. Just. <laughs> Go yeah. into your next meeting and start making some notes, either in the moment or afterwards, about what you're thinking and feeling mm -hmm. and tracking that. And that could be utterly revolutionary for them because it's bringing something into awareness about the way in which they behave and 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 what they need to learn. For other people, it's it's going to be potentially having a conversation with somebody who they are in real disagreement with that they have been putting off and they're actually going to, they're going to go for it, and they but they're going to experiment with a different way of engaging in that dialogue. Mm. Um, but though you know the degree of, of stretch within either of those scenarios is going to be very subjective. For one person, it will be utterly terrifying, and the other, it will be that's no problem at all. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the problem with with sometimes the way we think about about learning um, and development is is that we think that everybody will be at the same point. I did a, 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 a program years ago in, in New York for a, um, a publishing company, so a UK publisher, mm -hmm. and their US office. And we were doing the change curve, you know, the, the, um, the thing based on Kubler-Ross. And there was this American manager there, and I got them all to stand on this curve where they were relative to the change the organisation was going through. 
And this woman went and stood at the far right-hand side of this thing, which mm -hmm. is when you're through and you're in full acceptance. And she saw her half dozen other colleagues all at various other points on the curve. And she had the honesty to say, do you know what? This is utterly mind-blowing to me. It did not even occur to me that other people might be in a different place to me. Okay. That's the level of... Um, that's the, the, the degree to which we tend to think individualistically mm -hmm. and we struggle to sense make and to think about groups rather than individuals. And it's a very Western global North thing, by the way. It's a very US mm -hmm. um, um, European thing to do. But do you think that that's something that, I mean, can you, if if you never think about that, right? If you don't really think, if 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 nobody tells you about that, if you don't have that possibility to understand that, uh, then you may lead, you know, your own life like this, not thinking and thinking, you know, and being that individual and not understanding, well, you know, in a group setting. Well, you you say that say you know you may lead your life like that. So let's let's make a couple of logical leaps. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that that um, the way in which we do work is radically different to the way in which we do home is is patently absurd and um divorced from reality do people sometimes sharp at work and they they they, they bring a, di a different version of themselves yes up to a point mm -hmm. but the idea that we can disconnect from all our values and beliefs and behaviors that we hold outside work to those that we have in work is well is plain wrong and i'll give you a really clear example um i'll give you a couple so firstly in the in the post-Brexit vote in the UK, mm. um, pre-Brexit, when I was doing, when I would do contracting with groups, one of the words that would frequently show up when I was doing contracting in terms of what people would want in order to create the conditions for dialogue and sufficient safety and so on was respect. Mm -hmm. After Brexit, that word dropped off the vast majority of contracting conversations I had. Mm. Now, that's, I'm one consultant and one facilitator, but with mm -hmm. multiple data points. You know, we're talking about multiple instances in a clear pattern. Mm -hmm. So in societally, the notion of respect, and I've, spoke to, I've spoken to other practitioners about this, other facilitators, and they've had a similar experience. If societally, um, we are less able to respect differences, that is now, that feeds through into, into our, our values at work and then our behavior at work. Mm -hmm. And you just have to look in the UK year after year. We keep getting reports about discrimination and prejudice against different uh, groups of protected characteristics in different sectors. And the NHS being a very, a very powerful case in point because it employs something like 1.5 million people, 1.4. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we have someone like Andrew Tate, who is in prison in Romania um, at the moment, and you see how his ideology and his behaviour is impacting the peers of my 15-year-old daughter in school and, yeah. and boys who are even younger, mm -hmm. I defy anyone to tell me that is not going to impact organisations in five to ten years. Mm -hmm. Probably is now. Exactly. I mean, you know, when you think about these kinds of... When you start discussing that, I think that, you know, it's all about uh, speaking it uh, 
out and and start thinking about it and and discussing these kinds of things i think that only then you kind of get to those kinds of points otherwise otherwise it just it's there you kind of think that okay maybe you don't why why would you care otherwise you know why would you even you know care exactly i think that that's mm. the point but once people start thinking and discussing it i think that you know may, maybe that's you know that leads to some sort of change if we speak about that again you know well I, i'd hope so but you know the one of the things that I've noticed in recent years is the more comfortable I've got about saying what I think. And by the way, when I say stuff, I, I sometimes say stuff with what sounds like total certainty. I've been told that I say things with, with real certainty sometimes that that come across as like there's no room for doubt. But what's not in the open always is I also have a, a an underpinning belief, an assumption, um, which is that I... I always assume that I'm almost pro I'm, I'm sorry I'm open to the possibility that I'm almost probably certainly am wrong right <laughs> I'm totally comfortable with the idea that you may know something that I'm unaware of of course and if you, if you share it with me and I can look at it and go oh my goodness I hadn't thought of that yeah. all right okay, I'm gonna have to reconsider I'm really okay with that um but I notice in my work that the more The more I become comfortable with naming stuff and challenging things, I forget sometimes that others are not always at the same point that I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that in, in a, you know in in a make from kind of way. Okay. It's just it's it's a part of my practice that has developed in the last few years, and it's something that mostly not always, but mostly okay. I get. It, it's appropriate and I, I hit the right note um but that's yeah it's it's in, so, in other respects it's not that common i think i think you know that when you now mentioned very two very crucial points here the first one being is that you know you have to be not you don't have to but you know once we we, we should be open to that learning something new through other people kind of you know listening and then understanding you know somebody else knows more or somebody else knows something else that you don't know that's something that you've mentioned i think that that was something very important and the second mm -hmm. thing is that yeah we tend to think that the listener or or the person whom we're speaking to or you know working with we think that they're at the same place we tend to think mm -hmm. that because I think that that's, you know, that's easier for us because we kind of, you know, to, we project that, you know, I'm here. So I think that you're there. And then if we succeed in understanding that probably it's not the case, that's why we have this kind of, kind of miscommunication, then, you know, then, then that how it works. Biz culture. This is the podcast about the meaning of concepts in business. Um, Steve. We could talk and talk because I see that you know with each uh, with each kind of discussion with each answer I, I feel that you know we could continue and and expand our conversation into into, into something more, but um, I always have this uh, kind of a I don't know whatever you call it it's a game or just you know kind of a an ending podcast thing that we have I, um, while listening to you I write myself three concepts that we kind of cover the most and I'm going to share these three concepts with you and once i give you that first one you just immediately give me your kind of reaction to it okay without thinking mm -hmm. just tell me what what comes to your mind so the mm -hmm. first one is um better sameness mm. status quo okay 
The second one is change. A given. Okay. And the third one is edge and stretch. Uh, discomfort. Mm -hmm. And this time I'm going to give you the fourth one because mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I, I just can't add without this one. Discomfort. Mm -hmm. uh, life. Okay. What would you like to tell our listeners? Um, I don't want to call it, uh, you know, a message or anything, but maybe there's something that you'd like just to kind of the final word that you'd like to share or or leave that, you know, podcast with. Um, I, I suppose if, if it's in the territory of our conversation today, then mm -hmm. I guess it would be something like... Um, It's probably this, which is when you think about lots of the things that we worry about in organisations and lots of the challenges that are presented and how mm -hmm. they're constructed and talked about, and we look at exactly what it is people are worrying about, it's actually absurd in the mm -hmm. true sense of the word. Some of the stuff that leaders in organisations and, and people who work in organisations fret about, get anxious about, when we look at it honestly, and we, if we looked at it with a bit of perspective, we think, why on earth are we spending so much time getting our knickers in a twist? <laughs> and I'll give you a really short, specific example of, of this. Um, I did some pro bono coaching with people in the NHS in the first nine months of COVID in the UK. And the stories I was hearing were that in the first six months of COVID, there were multiple examples of people who pre-COVID had not been able to collaborate together, had been in conflict and disagreements and relationships were poor. And when the crisis hit and they had to just get on with stuff to save loves, save lives, all those petty resentments were just put to one side. Mm -hmm. And people just started working to get stuff done to save lives. That's kind of what I mean. But when push comes to shove, some of the things we get worried about and we we have disagreements about are just not important. They just become so minor, exactly. You just, they you are just forget absurd. them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, and and there's a, there's, to be really clear, there is, a, there is a point where, you know, not important does become absurdity. When you, mm -hmm. if you look at them, you just go, why on earth, why on earth did we even worry about that? That's mad. It's yeah. just mad. Plus, I think, you know, that it, it all comes down to this hall again, to, to, to that keyword that you've been mentioning, the discomfort. But that, you know, when discomfort really hits you, the big one, then you kind of start getting your values yeah. and, and everything else, yeah. you know, together. And you understand that that there's something so much bigger that you can... Well, have you ever read um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? No, but I should, I guess. Um, do, do you know about it? No. So Victor Frankl was a, um, a Jewish... Uh, I think psychiatrist or psychologist mm -hmm. who was in the camps and he survived. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a quite short book. It's only about 140 pages, but it's well worth reading. But in it, one of the things that stayed with me, he talks about the difference between the people who survived mm -hmm. the camps and the ones who didn't. And the ones who survived, he observed, were the ones who could find humour in even the most horrifying and darkest moments. 
they were the ones who lived. It may have been deeply black and darkly mm. comic, but the ones who could see humour and you know, hysterical absurdity in the horrors that they found themselves in mm -hmm. were, were tended to be the ones that lived. I just have to make a pause after that because I think that that's something you know that we, this is this is that something that we should leave our listeners with because that's that that's the thought. Thank you, Steve. It was um, it was you know it was I wouldn't say pleasure. I would say it was just um, eye opening listening to you. I think it was something that uh, yeah we that that's you know this whole podcast is all about listening to different kinds of perspectives and 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 uh, letting ourselves. Uh, be a little bit more open, you know, a little bit more open to the things perhaps we don't even think about. And that thing, you know, just let's let's um, not stress about the things that that eventually will be the absurd or minor, you know, as, as we kind of spoke yeah. about. Thank you, Steve, for your thank time. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So let's let's, you know, thank you, our listeners, for joining us once again in our podcast. And I hope that you're going to follow us over and over again and see you soon in this culture podcast so take care and bye steve thank you bye bye this culture this is the podcast about the meaning of concepts in business